This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Is it just me or does the opening of this season just seem newsier and stressier and soap opera-er? As we make up words, we bring up our Greg Oshinsky from ESPN. Hello, Wish. How are you for hour two? I'm good, but I mean, like, it's just a series of unforced errors. I mean, that's why it's newsier. Unforced errors by uh, the the NHL in, in uh, off-ice policies. Unor- unforced errors by players who don't understand the rules of what not to do when uh, online wagering. And uh, unforced errors mm. by the Ottawa Senators in May 2022. <laughs> or actually predating that, I guess it's 2021, <laughs> where they didn't tell the gold twice about this dumb... actually. Yeah, 2021. This dumb limited no-trade clause in Dadnoff's contract. It's just that we have all this news because yeah. people keep on messing up. We're all just looking for rakes to step on here, Greg Wyshynski. We're all just stepping on rakes. Uh, let's start with the latest then. And it is, the, uh, as you referenced, the, uh, the Ottawa Senators. We talked about this in Hour 1 a little bit. Um, if you're just joining us, the Ottawa Senators will surrender a first-round draft pick for their role in the Evgeny Dodonov situation. We've talked about it here and elsewhere. Uh, the Senators back in 21 traded Dodonov to the Vegas Golden Knights. Subsequently, the Vegas Golden Knights in 22 tried a trade deadline to move him to Anaheim, was informed that Anaheim was on the no-trade list. Vegas said, no trade list? What no trade list? You didn't submit that. That's the impression they were under, um, and Ottawa's come under some scrutiny since. And he did submit a no-trade list. Uh, That information was not made clear to the Vegas Golden Knights. And now because of it, two things. One, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights have had their names cleared in all of this fiasco. And the Ottawa Senators will surrender a first-round draft pick in either 24, 25, or 26. Now... Here, here's why I find this odd, Craig Wyshynski, and Al, you remember because you covered this entire story. The mm. Ilya Kovalchuk situation. Oh, and God. The, uh, oh, no. Uh, the, <laughs> okay, I know. We're going back. We're going back to Kovalchuk. For whatever reason, you and I have had so many conversations, like all roads lead back to Kovi, and here we go again. <laughs> so when the Ilya Kovalchuk uh, contract was ruled cap circumvention, the punishment was a first-round draft pick, a third-round draft pick, and $3 million. Like, that was a major one. Bam. But then what happened was, and Lou Lamarillo kept, kept kicking the, the draft can down the road. Oh, no, no, we'll surrender it next year. No, we'll surrender it next year. Um, Harrison Blitzer bought the New Jersey Devils. And Bettman actually cited this as a mitigating factor when he knocked down the penalty. Um, it turned into not surrendering a first-round draft pick, but the draft pick moved from 10th to 30th. They did surrender a third, and the $3 million was cut in half to $1.5. And Gary Bettman said, essentially, there's new owners here in New Jersey. This happened before they bought the team, uh, so we're knocking down the punishment. I honestly thought that we'd see something similar here, that it wouldn't be the first-round draft pick, because you can imagine Michael Andlauer, hey, thanks for the $900 million, almost $1 billion for the Senators. We're going to ding you with a first-round draft pick that you had nothing to do with whatsoever. You can imagine how he must have blown his top. I thought that this landing would be a little bit softer for the Ottawa Senators, didn't you? And mainly it's just because of when there's new ownership, 
You know, Gary Bettman likes to, you know, extend certain courtesies to people that have the nerve to pay almost a billion dollars for their franchises. Potentially, but I guess that the, the nuance here would be that, you know, the Kovalchuk contract, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, was always seemed to have been driven by ownership, by Jeff Vanderbeek, by them kind of having Lou figure out a way to make Lou this said thing it. work. Right, right. Lou okay, said so, it. I don't like this deal. Like, what have you, what have you said? It? I mean, it was the most hilarious press conference ever. Here's Lou Lamarillo announcing the Kovalchuk deal, and one of the first things he says is, I don't like this. It's like, you right. just signed this. <laughs> right, It was exactly. one of the most hilarious press conferences ever. Right, so, so again, so my, my memory does not fail me. Um, what we have here is a situation in which I don't think that the previous ownership... And, uh, you know, I don't think the late Eugene Melnick is, is sitting at the table being like, we've got to get the Dodonov trade done. You know what I mean? Like, I think the mm-hmm. difference is, is that this is driven by and the mistake was made by uh, the uh, former, the, the, the general manager at the time, who is still the general manager now. Yes? Pierre Dorian, correct. Yeah. So I think that's the difference. So I think that we're all wondering what now happens to Pierre Dorian through all of this. Um, I think we have, I think we've wondered a few things with the Ottawa Senators, um, with uh, the new owner, Michael Andlauer, and Steve Steos coming in. And all of a sudden we see Daniel Alfredson on the ice and... You know, Alverson said something that was pretty telling, and Steo said something that was pretty telling as well, which is, you know, we haven't determined in what capacity officially Daniel Alfredson is going to serve with the Ottawa Senators. We're going to take our time to figure that out. Hmm. And the way that I heard that one, curious how you heard that one, was we're going to wait and see who's still employed here in the next little while. And after we determine who's still employed here in the next little while, then we'll settle on what exactly Alfredson is here to do. Because I think right. a lot of people were surprised in some regards to see Alfred, considering the acrimony between, you know, uh, obviously we all know about, you know, Eugene Melnick and Daniel Alfredson and how that situation ended uh, and the animosity that existed um, both ways. Uh, between the two, and all of a sudden Alfredson appears, and we wonder what that means for Pierre Dorian. And now with this punishment, I think we wonder what this means for Pierre Dorian in Ottawa as well. Did I say anything that you disagree with there? Not a thing. Not a thing that I disagree with. I think we're all kind of just trying to figure out where the pieces fit. And again, like when a new owner comes in, I mean, obviously we know that they like to get their own guys in there. And, uh, sure, you know, listen, I don't think what came down today will be ultimately the reasoning for such things, correct? Uh, I think it might be the fate of the team on the ice. But uh, that being said, they do have a press conference called today, don't they? <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where this one heads. But it does very much feel like... Um, it does very much feel like Vegas really wanted their team cleared in all of this. I don't think that Kelly McCrimmon, Bill Foley, anyone in the organization liked being part of that situation with the Anaheim Ducks at trade deadline 2022. And they wanted it known that 
that they were not in the wrong at all, that they wanted to be right. cleared through all of this. Like, I, it sounds very much like that was the, the main driver here. Have you heard anything otherwise? I, I haven't heard anything otherwise, but I also didn't, didn't hear that that was paramount. You know, like, like, look, did we did we think it was their fault when this whole thing went down? Because they were sort of a victim of circumstance, weren't they? Well, they're a victim of not being, I mean, according to all of this, not being told that Dodonov carried with him a no trade clause, a no trade party right. contract. But was there like a supreme pushback from the senators or anybody else when this thing came? Again, this thing happened so long ago. When this thing came down, was there a supreme pushback from, yeah. from Ottawa to say that, oh, no, 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 it's their fault. It's their mess up. They should get their paperwork in order. Or it felt like at the time. See, and again, it, we're talking about a year ago, which, you know, in, in reality years is like 50 years. Uh, at the time, it felt like very much <laughs> that we were all in agreement that it was a a paperwork issue it was a problem with the senators not disclosing this thing on the call i don't rem- I, I don't know i mean again the maybe i'm wrong on this but i don't there's, think hang on, that there's, the golden knights should really be worried about their reputation here there's one piece of the puzzle that we don't know and i can't even speculate on but there is one piece of the puzzle that we don't know through all of this and that is what was the nature of the conversation between the ottawa senators pierre dorian general manager and the league i don't know what happened I don't know the nature right. of what was discussed and who said what. I think that is a huge piece of all of this. We don't know what that answer is. We may never know what the answer to all of that is. But I think that's think that that's the up, huge that's the huge piece here. Do you think he gets up in front of a microphone today and says I goofed? Like is there a, is there a possibility he gets up there just like I goofed? I don't know. 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 Do you think there's a possibility, Merrick, he gets up in front of that microphone and, he's, and, and someone says, how do you answer to this major snafu that will cost your team a first-round pick? And he <laughs> says, and he says, we're a team. <laughs> the, the famous David Amber interview. Yeah, we're a team. Okay, uh, so that's the Ottawa situation. Elsewhere, uh, I want to talk to you about Calgary. I do want to talk to you about neck guards. And if we have time, I want to get to Pinto. But I really want to ask you about Nick Backstrom. And the news today that he is, this is the second player from the 2006 draft, Jonathan Taves being the other one, uh, taking time away uh, from hockey right now to to reevaluate and and see where he wants to head. Listen, uh, coming back from the major surgery that that he's gone through, um, we all suspected would be challenging. Um, It's hard because he was such a good player for so long. And if you look at that 2006 draft, um, he's number one uh, when it comes to points. Um, you know, more so than Brad Marchand and Phil Kessel and Claude Giroux, et cetera. He's, he's number one, um, you know, very quietly putting up over a thousand points. Like everything, everything Nick Backstrom kind of did was quiet. Maybe it's because Ovechkin, everything that he did was loud and it tended to overshadow anything that Backstrom did. But, you know, you were right there for the longest time covering the Washington Capitals. Uh, and you saw, you know, the rise of Ovechkin, the rise of Backstrom as well. Uh, your thoughts on all of this one, and we'll get to what this means for the Caps next, which means more cap space, but your thoughts on Nick Backstrom right now? Sad. I'm sad to hear the way that his career is going to kind of probably peter out with his body breaking down. You know, when we look back at Ovechkin breaking this record, hopefully breaking this record, 
Um, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of conversation about his velocity, uh, his shot, the OV spot, the power play, the incredible yep. goal scoring rate during a time when goals weren't as easy to come by. And I feel like Backstrom's role in this is going to be down the list a little bit, and it really shouldn't be. I mean, like, for a good chunk of the early part of Ovechkin's career before the Capitals kind of, like, split him up and had uh, Backstrom, like, populate his own line more than play with Ovi, like, Backstrom was the guy on that line that was yep. driving play. And and more, more the other thing, too, about it, Merrick, when you have a generational goal, goal scorer like, like Ovechkin, who, to put it kindly, didn't always pay attention to the goings-on in the defensive zone. Uh, it is good to have somebody <laughs> on your line who yeah. was without question one of the best two-way centers in the game. Uh, didn't get the recognition yeah. necessarily for, uh, from the Selkie, and, and we could nope. you know, probably talk nope. about how being in the Patrice Bergeron generation uh, didn't do him any favors. Uh, but but to have somebody like Backstrom who could play a 200-foot game while Sovi was playing a 70-foot game at times uh, was also very beneficial, I think, to the Capitals and to Ovechkin. <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I think back to that draft as well, that draft was in Vancouver. Eric Johnson goes first overall. Do you know the... Uh... The story about the Washington Capitals and that draft specifically and the player Chicago took. Go ahead. I ever tell you this one? Go ahead. So I have to back up a little bit on this one. So Olaf Kolzig, who we all loved, all loved, uh, who played with the Tri-City Americans, was at that point one of the owners of the Tri-City Americans of the Western Hockey League. And they were wooing a young kid out of Manitoba to come and join the Tri-City Americans, and that was Jonathan Taves. So much so, so convinced that Jonathan Taves would join them in the Western Hockey League, they selected him first overall in the Western Hockey League draft, only to see Jonathan Taves go to the University of North Dakota instead. So they had a first overall pick. Selected Taves, and he said, thanks, but no thanks. I don't think that Olaf Kolzig was that amused. Thank you very much. And <laughs> you'll recall, at the draft, both Ovechkin and Kolzig were there to you know, do the announcement for the Washington Capitals, and Eric Johnson goes first to the St. Louis Blues. Okay, that was mm -hmm. expected. The Pittsburgh Penguins take Jordan Stahl from the Peterborough Peets, number two. Ooh, interesting here. Are the Chicago Blackhawks going to take Nick Backstrom or maybe Phil Kessel? At which point that would leave Jonathan Taves for the Washington Capitals at four. And anyone who understood the story at that time who followed junior hockey said, wow, uh, Olaf Kolzig and Alex Ovechkin are going to be on stage and they're going to take Jonathan Taves and they'll shake the hand of the man who he said no to in the Western League when they took him first overall and instead went to the University of North Dakota. Of course, the Blackhawks spoiled all the fun. They just took Jonathan Taves and the Washington Capitals took Nick Backstrom. But it is one of the, it is one of the funnier stories uh, involving yeah. the draft. The great things at the draft that never 
happened. Closing, that was, I mean, that was a really intriguing draft as well because that was the one, the Claude Giroux, Bobby Clark forgets the name, etc., etc., etc. But that's the story that I always remember from the 2006 draft. Anyway, a long-winded story about Nick Backstrom. And I'm with you. Like, I'm, I'm sad to see it because I'm yeah. with you. Like, when we're going to look back at this era and Alex Ovechkin, I think there's a couple of names that I really hope have a lot of prominence. Um, one is Nick Backstrom, and the other is a name that I don't want to say history's forgotten because Caps fans don't forget, but as much as we think about John Carlson and all those passes, I really hope that Mike Green's a big part of it. I oh, really, really absolutely. do. And, I right? I really hope that Mike Green is a part of all of that. I was just having a discussion about Mike Green the other day. It might have been in, in the context of the the NHL Edge site coming out and getting a little bit more of the uh, puck and player tracking data more publicly available. But, like, I think we've talked about it before in the old show, like the idea of Mike Green having been one of the first test cases, even before Eric Carlson, one of the first test cases on what puck possession meant vis-a-vis... Um, uh, being a, a more offensive defenseman than a defensive defenseman. And and how, you know, the, the years in which he, he probably should have won, at least on Norris, were always held up by the analytics community as to be saying, well, you know what? Sometimes the best defense is good at offense. And I always felt that Mike Green in his career helped drive that hmm. point forward more than any other defenseman at the time. The, the the one thing that I, I'll let me let me pick that up and go one step further. The one thing that I that I, I think a lot of us have come to realize with players like Eric Carlson or Mike Green is you work on you sort of work on percentages in some way. Like if his play in the defensive zone costs you five scoring opportunities, but his play in the offensive zone um, grants you ten or fifteen. You know, with, with, with situations like that, like with percentages like that, like you win Stanley Cups, right? If it's only going to cost you five and you're going to bonus 15 at the other end or bonus 10 at the other end, right. like that's how you win in the NHL. I think that was, yeah. to be honest with you, Greg, I think that was uh, along with things like zone entries, for example, um, and the work around face-offs. I think that's one of the first things I think that the rise of analytics, I think, taught everybody, both hardcore and casual hockey fans. For sure, for sure. Um, I heard about the Backstrom thing at a press conference today. I don't think I told you where I was today. I was at the uh, MetLife Stadium Stadium Series press conference with uh, Gary Bettman and Marty Walsh, representatives from the Devils and Flyers and Rangers and Islanders, and we got to see on the where the rink's going to be in the big stadium. And um, I was sad to get the news about Backstrom. But it did distract me, Merrick, from how angry I am that the Devils and Rangers aren't playing in this game. Like, I can't, I still am so very angry that there's a game in North Jersey, which is the, the, the uh, absolute access between Devils fandom and Rangers fandom. And the Rangers are playing the Islanders. And God bless them. It's a great rivalry, probably the best current rivalry between sports teams in the New York metropolitan area. And then, uh, or, or I should say in New York City. In the New York metropolitan area, the best rivalry between two teams is the Devils and Rangers. And it makes me just mental that the Devils aren't playing the Rangers in this game in front of like 80,000 people. Refresh my memory because things seem so long ago that were really about five minutes ago. Didn't these two teams just have a great playoff series last year? Didn't, and aren't they both yeah, off I, to in, incredible starts right now in the metropolitan? But like that, that series last year was fantastic it's one of the best series in the playoffs the only, last year 
The only thing I can figure out is that they wanted to do the gimmick where they're going to get two games in there, one on Saturday and one on Sunday, and or I think it's Saturday and Sunday. And, uh, and, and so if you put the Rangers with the Devils, then you'd get the Islanders and the Flyers. And I don't think they're filling that building for Islanders, Flyers. Do respect to Islanders fans and Flyers fans. Devils fans will fill, help fill that building against the Flyers. And the Rangers fans are obviously going to fill that building against the Islanders. So from a logistics standpoint, it makes sense. From a what I really want to see booked standpoint, it's still very disappointing that it's not the Devils and the Rangers. <laughs> I don't know. You just sort of go historical with it. And, you know, you talk about the Islanders first Stanley Cup and Bob Nystrom and et cetera and beat the Philadelphia Flyers and all the offsides that everybody in Philadelphia has been complaining about from time <laughs> immemorial. I'm like, we just, just go that way. But just go historical with the, uh, with, with the entire thing. Um, let me ask you about neck guards and the Please. idea of mandatory neck guards. And you mentioned that Gregory Bettman and Marty Walsh were in attendance today. Um, they had a conversation over the weekend about getting this discussion on the table. Um, we've seen players push back on everything, uh, everything from helmets after Bill Masterton uh, to visors uh, to shot blockers on the feet. Um, and the latest one is neck guards. There are certain leagues that have now made it mandatory. Um, uh, youth hockey, minor hockey in, in Canada, they are mandatory. I know it's an issue stateside. Uh, and speaking of issues, I know a lot of retailers right now are having a hard time keeping cut-resistant technology on the shelves. The last 72 hours have seen a major spike, both in retailers and online as well. And the suppliers are having a hard time keeping up with demand. And it seems as if, you know, Greg, it, it seems as if from every corner of the hockey universe, whether it's... Um, uh, leagues, whether it's teams, whether it's manufacturers, whether it's fans, like from every single corner, everybody is sort of screaming for cut-resistant technology around the next, i.e. neck guards. The only people who seem to be pushing back are the players. Do you mm -hmm. think that changes, or is this another example of, if you're going to get it done... You're going to have to grandfather it. And then we're going to have to ask the question, who is going to be the Craig McTavish of neck guards? <laughs> well, if, if I, I do think you're, you've hit on what is the delicate balance here, which is that the uh, NHLPA is going to have to come to some consensus about what it is they want. Um, because as we've seen in the past, the NHL mandating an equipment change uh, does not go over all that well if the NHLPA isn't you can't do it. in the same direction. You can't do it. So what I've learned today in talking to Bettman and talking to Marty Walsh is, like you said, uh, not only a, a current conversation with Walsh and Bettman about um, the situation that happened in, in the UK, but, but also the NHL has had for years been studying what they could do to help mitigate that kind of tragedy um, or, you know, protect mm -hmm. the player's wrist, for example, you know, Kevlar and things of that nature. So the NHL has been kind of looking at this in the course of multiple years. And I asked Bettman if what happened puts this on the front burner to which he answered, it's always been on the burner, which is very, a very Bettman thing to say. But the, the interesting mm -hmm. thing is that Marty Walsh told me that it, um, in January at the all-star game, or, you know, when the all-star game comes around, uh, Joe Ricci of the NHLPA, uh, his counterpart at the NHL, they're going to sit down and have a real salient conversation 
about where things stand, not only in technology, um, but I imagine also in desire for change. And we may get a real clear picture in the next few months about um, where the PA is on this. The other thing, too, is I, I had a conversation with Danny Briere, the GM of the Flyers at this thing today, too, about net guards. And I asked him, mm-hmm. look, the, the Penguins just did this thing where they're going to have all their minor leaguers like wear them. You know, are the Flyers yep. in kind of the same situation? And and he said what I think is going to be echoed by a lot of people, which is that there needs to be some study. There needs to be uh, an understanding of, of what the available options are out there insofar as what's going to offer the players the best protection and, of course, uh, the be- the most comfort because that's going to ultimately be one of the big determining factors here. So I, I I don't I think the Penguins are an outlier uh, for obvious reasons in, in making the declaration they made this yeah. week. Um, I'm not sure how many teams are going to follow suit without really putting in some due diligence to understand uh, what's out there and what's available to the players more. You know, one of the things that I wonder about here, and I don't know if it becomes part of the conversation or if you know the the NHL or certainly the NHL would, but I'm sure the Players Association really um, takes this into consideration. I'm not sure about you, but um, after this happened, after the Adam Johnson uh, death happened uh, 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 over the weekend in the Nottingham Sheffield game, I got DMs from people who were there, who were at the rink and were traumatized. Wow. To say one thing, it's one thing to, to, to have watched it online, um, but I got you know, DMs from people who were there. Like a lot of people through all of this are going to need, you know, significant help and support and therapy, to be honest with you. I mean, people essentially saw someone die on the ice uh, from in, in one of the most grotesque ways that uh, that is imaginable. Um, and the one thing that I keep coming back to, you know, after Brittany Cecil passed away, the nets went up. Like, that was oh, it. Yeah. We're, we're putting nets up. We have to keep fans safe here. And the one thing that I think about in this situation, I've been trying to bang this drum a while. Curious your thoughts on this one. Does what the fans want mean anything in this conversation like i can't imagine that the nhl wants their fans to see that or have the potential for that to happen at their game they do not want that as part of their product at all and anything they can do to mitigate against that they will do do you think that you know that the fans voice has any bearing on what gets done here? I can't think of like the, there's no one who wants to go to a hockey game and see that or see Clint Malarchuk or see Richard Zednick. Like nobody wants to see that at a hockey game at all. Is that part of this conversation at all? Do you think? Yeah, it's it's never been uh, a a we watch NASCAR for the crashes situation when it comes to horrific hockey injuries. <laughs> like it's. It's a repellent part of of the game. It's not a a part of the game that attracts people to it. So from a pure marketing standpoint... There's no Rock'em Sock'em videos for skate cuts. It's body checks and fights and all that. No one's coming for the cuts. Precisely. So so from a marketing standpoint, you'd figure, yeah, you'd figure they would want to do anything that they can to mitigate that kind of thing ever happening in an NHL game again. Um, And and certainly to the the point where there's a, a loss of life. Because uh, I don't even know how you come back from that if you're the NHL. So, um, yeah. like, yeah, I, I I think your point's really well taken. Um, that that being said, I get again, like the, the netting can go up because the netting wasn't draped across the players' throats or or wrapped around their hands. 
and, and I'll I'm always going to side on the side of the players when it comes to mandating equipment changes, and, and that's essentially what this would be. Um, you know, it's their they could wear it now if they want. Like, there's nothing the NHL yeah. is going to say <laughs> as far as like these guys wearing this stuff now. Um, uh, but I, I I think it's important to to hopefully have them have these discussions internally to figure out the best way forward and and also to kind of hear the minority opinion on on some of this you know i'm sure we you and i have both talked to people that see this as a really freak accident i know dan carcillo in the um somewhat rambling video he put out this week regarding the situation made at least one interesting point which is that nhl and ahl players have to understand when they go and play in leagues that aren't the nhl or ahl you're going to have situations where guys may not know how to keep each other safe in certain situations true um so there's a lot of that out there and 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 i'm hoping that the nhlpa which again is very massive and very hard to get everybody on the same page has a robust conversation about the right way and the right path forward um, to keep everybody safe, but also to get buy-in. That's the real key here is you got to get buy-in from people yeah. and hopefully buy-in from people that doesn't require the NHL to pass a rule. One of the things that I'm still like to this day and, you know, this situation with Adam Johnson on the weekend just, you know, reminded me of it. Like after Richard Zednick got cut, like after a while, he took the neck guard off and said, well, what are the odds of it happening twice? Right, yeah. And I think that that's a, a, prevailing, a prevailing attitude amongst NHLers, which is it is such a freak, it happens so rarely that if I play the percentages, it's not going to happen to me. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I think a lot of fans will find that to be a repellent kind of, kind of like notion um, in, yeah. in the sense that these guys have all this like sense of invincibility um, but at the same time, I mean, when you do take a step back and see how many times that has happened, it, it doesn't happen, you know, all that often. And the other thing too is, is, um, the, oh, before you, before you go on, we talked to, uh, Teddy Bluger on, on the drop, uh, our, my podcast with Arda this week. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. It, that was really good. That yeah, was he was really great. Good. He was great. I hope people check it out. He, he made mention of the, of, of the same thing that other guys have talked about in the past when it comes to horrific injuries, which is that. You don't want to think about it. And these guys don't talk. It's not like they're in the dressing room talking about this potentially happening one day. They don't talk about it, no. probably partially out of superstition, but also because you don't want that creeping into your game. You don't want hesitancy. You don't want that, not only because of what it does for you as a player and your effectiveness, but because it could potentially lead to injury by, by, by you know that moment of hesitation on a play or something like that. So... It's a very, very nuanced argument. It's a very, very nuanced debate. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm intrigued to see where the players ultimately fall on it. You know, there was... Um, I can recall one manager's meeting. Um, I can't remember. I don't know who it was. But someone proposed the idea of getting rid of the gates on the boards that let the players in and out. Because as anyone knows, you open those things and all of a sudden that's danger zone if you get hit anywhere near there. Like injuries are catastrophic. Um, and I know someone put forward the idea of getting rid of the gates to which someone else, I'm not sure who it was, made an even better point, which is, so you're telling me you want skates in the air all game long with guys jumping over the boards to come off the ice and go on the ice? 
that is an absolute recipe for disaster. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen the, the the you know considering how many guys jump over the boards uh, in a game on a regular basis in, in in every league that we haven't seen anything when you consider how much time there are skates uh, spent in the air. But anytime anyone brings up the idea of of getting rid of the gates, just think like, hang on, it's more dangerous the other way. Trust me. I'm I'm shocked that we haven't had more of everything, man. These guys are skating on Ginzu knives. Like, like yeah, it's it's miraculous that that this sort of thing hasn't happened in the league, um, considering the velocity with which they play uh, and the weird body positions. I mean, everybody's seen games every season where you watch a replay and you're just like, oh my god, two inches to the left, and we're having a completely oh, I different know. conversation. I know, you know. So so the fact that it hasn't happened more often is kind of miraculous. But you know, when when, when I, I, you know when I got asked about this. Um, on a news uh, hit after it happened with, with, with Adam Johnson, like I said the same thing I've been saying for years, man. Like it's an inherently violent game and, and we can do everything that we can to mitigate the just terrible things that could happen to these players when they play this sport, but we're never going to be a hundred percent on it. And, and that's actually one of the arguments that I've heard about the neck guards too, is that like, it's not a cure all it's preventative it could definitely save a life, but it doesn't necessarily mitigate everything that could happen with a skate to placed against somebody's neck. Of course. Um, so even even of when course. we well, do, you know what? Speed, speed, hang on, hang on. Speed, speed limits aren't going to stop car crashes either. Right. Completely. Right. But you do have them. So it's it's. Um, okay. Uh, last one before I let you go. Um, who goes first from the Calgary Flames? <laughs> like like on the ice <laughs> <laughs> who gets traded first it doesn't it feel like we're already we're already at that point right now like Craig Conroy has looked at this and said okay maybe it wasn't just the coach maybe the problem should have been beyond here. this point Do, you know the the watching the heritage classic put everything in sharp relief for me that I've been saying for two years now what my banging this drum everywhere about the Calgary Flames about them being a supporting cast in search of a star and they, they lost their two stars in Goudreau and Kachuk they lost 30 goals out the door into Foley and so you're left with this team and in particular you know a team that that I think if they still had a you know a son to revolve around could be a pretty effective galaxy if you know what I'm saying the problem is, is that the only mm-hmm. way you can get those players is, is through the draft. Um, you know, they got Huberto, who, again, I, I love him as a player. I still think of him as a complimentary guy, as opposed to the guy, the, the, stir that straws, the, 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 stir, the straw that stirs the drink. Um, so the only way you're going to get those guys is through the draft. And there should have been a better recognition that the path forward for this franchise, the minute you lose Kachuk, the minute you lose Goudreau, and looking at the contractual situation for a lot of the other players on this team, was probably to pack up the tents and rebuild through the draft. And now they're going to have to do it in probably a more painful way than they would have if they had come to this conclusion a couple of years ago. All right. Uh, on that, we'll wrap. Uh, Eric Stevens on the other side from The Athletic um, on the California squads. Wish always good. Uh, be safe. Be well. Uh, as always, my best to Arda, my good buddy from years and years ago. <laughs> and we will talk in seven days, my friend. Oh, and, and salient to you, sir. Adam Copeland on the drop yes. this week. Yes, indeed. Did you the, see what he went uh, out for himself. his Halloween in, at Halloween? Did you see who no, I, what he went out as for Halloween? 
What is that? What he do do? wore one of Rey Mysterio's masks. He wore one of Rey, one of Rey Mysterio's masks. Oh my goodness. It's exciting. Yeah, he, he was great. He was. He, we I love the idea the of I, 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 devils and everything. I, I just love the idea of a wrestler going out as another wrestler for Halloween. <laughs> I don't know why I find that endlessly yeah, entertaining. Like, yeah, but it, it's it's like me, me going out for Halloween as Adam Schefter. You know, it's just like, what's the point? <laughs> uh, you'd be good. We'll talk at seven, pal. Take care.